what I'm going to do right now is we're going to read the passage that we're going to take a look at. It's Colossians chapter 3. Um, this morning we'll be picking up it right around um, verse 19. Actually, we'll take a look at a couple verses prior to that. So what I'll do is I'm going to read um, the passage. And then um, after that, um, we're going to pray. And then we'll get to work taking a look at this. Um, so open up. Let's read. Um, on the slide, we're going to pick it up at verse 14, then we'll jump forth to verse 17, and then we'll pick it up at verse 18 and read all the way through that till chapter 4, verse 1. So um, 14 and 17 starts off this way. It says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jump down to 17. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves or bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. But uh, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, uh, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and, with, uh, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your slaves or bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So God, we ask you right now that you would just help us understand the practicality of the gospel as it begins to move forward from our lives, beyond the walls of a church, into this culture, this society, into the various roles that we play in this culture and society. God, we need your help to understand this. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enable us, open our eyes to understand this, that it wouldn't just simply be theoretical, but that it would be reality and changes and transformative. So God, captivate, capture our hearts this morning with your beauty. God, let your beauty be what compels us, what moves us, what challenges us, what changes us to be people that are like you. So we commit this time in your hands and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what we're going to jump in to looking at here this morning, and I was intentional about the verses that I read because technically um, we left off last week at around verse 17, so which would, as you know, if you've been part of our fellowship any amount of time, you know that typically what we do is we take books in the Bible and just kind of go through them, and we just let the scripture speak to us, and our our job is to really just try to let the scripture uh, address our hearts, and there's benefits to that. One of the greatest benefits is that there's, you you cannot run away from what the text is telling you. So, you know, oftentimes preachers have this dirty little secret, I'll let the cat out of the bag, I'll let you know what it is. Preachers love to oftentimes pick and choose certain subjects that are really, really exciting to them. Problem is that we oftentimes have this ability, this uncanny ability, to actually omit subjects that God wants us to address, all right? And so when you teach through a book in the Bible, you can't do that. You have to stick with what the text tells you. So you're forced, really, by way of just letting the Bible say what the Bible says to actually address these things. So um, we will be getting to some of those um, challenging verses that we just read. I mean, for example, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Some of us are like already bristling at that. We're like, what is that all about? Like, I hate that verse. And, and we will get to that, but actually not today. We will get to that next week. And the week following that, we will then begin to take a look at how the gospel plays its role into, or plays its way out into the role of families, and then ultimately in the workplace. But what I want to do today is I'm going to take a look at all of these passages that we just looked at, basically from a 30,000 foot perspective. So in other words, we will basically try to fly over these things, understand them from a big screen, big picture perspective, to understand where Paul is going with all of these things, and to understand where, what he's trying to compel us to see and to live out and understand. So let me put it this way. The gospel affects you and I and our whole self All right, it does. We know that. So in other words, if you're a Christian, you know what it means to be forgiven. You know what it means to have your sins washed away. You know what it means to have a hope that after this life is, uh, you know, an everlasting life with Jesus in heaven, with him, awaiting, hopefully awaiting, ultimately the resurrection when Jesus will come back to this earth and set up a kingdom that will have no end. 
That's our great hope. So we understand very clearly that the gospel affects and impacts our whole self. But it's not less than individual salvation, but it's far more than that. So in other words, it's so pervasive that it actually works its way outward into the various roles in and throughout all society. So as I was kind of thinking about this and studying for this, the way that Paul actually lays this out is actually masterful. In other words, what Paul does is he basically says, look, you Christians, he's addressing Christians, you've been brought into, swept up into this new life called, you know, Jesus. He's washed you, he's cleansed you, he's given you a new engine, he's changed your heart, the motivations, what drives you. So you, in other words, it's almost like you took off an old nature, you shed an old skin that's been dry and dead and decrepit and broken, but you have put on new nature, a new skin, new clothing that you couldn't afford, but you needed, and it's been given to you by grace. And as a result of that, you are now moving out into this world. And what Paul then begins to say that love binds all of these things together, that Christ is working in and through all of these things, and we're doing all these things in the name of the glory of Christ. And as the gospel then begins to make its way out beyond us, it goes into these various strata or spheres of our lives. And what Paul does is he addresses the main institutions throughout this whole world. He addresses husbands and wives, which is marriage. He addresses fathers and children, which is families. He addresses uh, bond servants and slaves. Now, if you, and we can look into this more in depth in the next several weeks, but if you understand anything about kind of that slave or bond-slave master relationship, it's very unlike the type of slavery relationship that was in America in the South. But it was a type of relationship, in other words, can be best described as work. That most people throughout the ancient Roman Empire were and somehow indebted to somebody else, and so therefore they would be a slave paying off a debt. And slavery in this context uh, pervaded all forms and all spheres of life, from the marketplace all the way to the politician's nest. Everywhere. In other words, the idea is that Paul's saying is that the gospel is so all pervasive, it doesn't just simply affect you individually or the church corporately, but it affects the entire known social, political, economic strata of all society. From every institution, families, marriages, to the workplace. And this is amazing. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to begin to kind of give us something to equip ourselves to let the gospel begin to pervade all of these spheres. And we'll look at this more in a, in, in a sense in a moment. But what's fascinating about this is what Paul doesn't say. I mean, Paul could have come on the scene and been like, all right, guys, here's a whole new rule book. Here's an owner's manual on how for husbands to, you know, treat their wives. Like 45 rules on what you should do with your wives. And, you know, here's a rule book, 80 rules for you women because we'll double it up because, you know, tilt the scales over there a little bit towards male because that's kind of the way we do things in the first century. Um, Paul doesn't do that. What Paul does, actually, is he basically gives, for the most part, um, a foundation. If you want to think of it this way, he basically erects certain columns, all right? Talking kind of first century Roman-esque type architecture here. He erects columns, all right? Maybe a handful of columns. And he says, here's the columns on a solid foundation. Now, now that you know where the columns go, build your house. Build it around these columns. Build it around these concepts, these ideas, these fundamental concepts of what the gospel looks like throughout all society, in the workplace, in the family, in the marriage. That's what Paul does. So we're going to begin to take a look at those areas of how the gospel begins to make its way into all these particular spots throughout um, all society. In other words, if Paul were to sort of have a question that's driving him, I think the question that Paul may be thinking about, or at least somewhere in the back of his mind as he's writing this, might go something like this. Like, how are we to rethink our roles in our lives in society in light of the reality that Jesus God's son came, bore our sin, our shame, our death, died, and yet ultimately conquered the grave by rising again. If I can put it this way, what drives Paul, causes him to keep on pressing in and thinking is the question, how does the gospel of the fact that Christ is resurrected from the dead, how does that reshape every single relationship that I have with me personally, the way that I deal with my life, my inner life? 
with me in a body, within a family of other people? How does the gospel reshape the way I think about my job? Let me make it personal. How does the gospel make me as a dad of two daughters? How does it reshape the way that I think about being a daddy to two daughters, teens? How does it reshape the way that I should think about being a husband to my wife, 23 years? How does it reshape me? Because it should reshape me. That's what Paul's saying. It reshapes us. If you're a Christian, it has to come out of the realm of privatization and in the realm of society. And because of this, we see that God is very concerned, not just about your little personal relationship with Jesus, though he is. It's not, it's not less than that, but it's far more than that. He's also concerned with how you relate, how you respond in all spheres of life, all roles in which you play. This is amazing how God does this. So we're gonna begin to unpack this. So first of all, we'll just take a look at two specific things today. One is the new humanity and the scope of God's restoration. So first of all, we'll take a look at the new humanity and the scope of God's restoration. The second thing we'll take a look at is the new humanity and the shape of God's restoration. So first of all, the scope, how vast is it? How broad is it? And then the shape, what shape does it take? What does it begin to look like? What can we expect to look Four in terms of the columns, all right? There we go back to that architectural motif again. So if you've got a foundation and you've got columns, what shape would those columns make on the foundation of our lives? What shape will they take in everyone's life who has been bought by Jesus and brought into this new humanity, this new relationship? So those are the two things we'll take a look at. One, the new humanity and the scope of God's restoration. We'll take a look at three specific areas. One is that the new humanity, first of all, affects us personally. It affects us personally. We are already alluded to this. It affects you and I as individuals. It doesn't stop there, which we will get to that in a moment, but it does begin there. It begins with you and I as individuals, how we see ourselves in light of who God is. And unfortunately, one of the things that oftentimes happens for us as Westerners, because oftentimes we are so impacted and so affected, maybe even so uh, infected by the culture around us, that what ends up happening is we become very centralized upon ourselves. In other words, we have oftentimes a hard time being able to see life beyond ourselves. So we turn Christianity into nothing more than to a privatized type relationship that I have with God. So me and God, and we tend to think that that's all that matters, is me and my relationship with Jesus. Without ever really considering what and how that impacts me and my relationship with the body of Christ called the church. So what happens is sort of a common language, oftentimes amongst some evangelicals that have been kind of burnt out by what I would say caricatures of Christianity, is that they would say, I love Jesus, but I really dislike the church. And I would say the New Testament does not have any category for that. that, that is not, that's not biblical. That is not New Testament thinking. That's not the way the church ever operated. That's the way that we oftentimes may operate because we tend to sort of privatize Christianity in terms of my life. So I need to first of all deal uh, in the beginning phase of looking at this, that it does affect us personally. So really what it begins to do is it sort of shapes us internally. And it does this in two ways. And we looked at this, and just have to be honest with you, some of this, a lot of it is actually sort of by way of review. But again, um, because we're flying, you know, 30,000 feet above all of this, uh, we will get some review. Um, but hopefully that will be okay for you because uh, it's good. We love God's word and we want to continue to learn and grow and let God challenge us in those areas that we need to be challenged. So first of all, we see that this actually reshapes us, according to verses 3 through 6. It reshapes us personally by way of our sexuality. <laughs> Some of you might be like, what? Did, did he just say it's sexuality? Yes, I just said sexuality. It actually affects us. It changes. It reshapes our sexuality. This might be a strange place to start. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I admit that. It's like, Really? Like, wouldn't it start with, like, dealing with anger issues? Wouldn't it start with, like, making me into a nice person? But actually, Paul starts with our sexuality. So take a look at the verses that he describes. In verses 3 through 6, he says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So here's what Paul is basically saying, is that, the gospel is so pervasive that it goes so deep down to, into us personally that it begins to shape some of those fundamental areas about our humanity. Now, the reality is, is that we have to take a look at this. 
we have to address this. We have to deal with this. And this is one of the subject matters that oftentimes the church doesn't like to address. And what really the gospel is pressing into us is the question of really how we think about sex and with whom do we have sex. How do we think about sex and with whom do we have sex? So how do we think about sex? Let's tackle that. Oftentimes what's happened within the church is we typically take one of two radical extremes. One is we don't ever talk about sex because it's filthy, it's dirty, it's imprudish, and you know we don't like to talk about stuff like that because it's just so nasty. The opposite extreme is everything becomes sexualized. We live in a highly sexualized culture. You guys all know this. Highly sexualized. And let's, let's be honest. This is not anything new. All right? We have a tendency to be like, oh my gosh, culture's so sexualized. Have you ever seen like ancient Roman statues? All right, I mean, that's all I need to say. Like, don't do a Google search looking for them because it's not good, all right? Pastor told me, like, do a Google search. No, I didn't. All right, the point of the matter is, is we live in a highly sexualized culture. It's not, it's always been that way. And Paul's writing in a highly sexualized culture. So we either sort of, you know, kind of run from sexuality and just shun it, talk, you know, view it as kind of dirty. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to mention it. And at all, and oftentimes it becomes sort of this big elephant in the room where everybody knows it's there, everybody's thinking about it, but what happens is religious leaders are too holy, too, you know, appear to everyone even talk about it, but the point of the matter is, is we gotta talk about it. Paul talks about it, Jesus talks about it. It's part of God restoring. Why does it need restoring? Because we have taken something that's a good thing from God and we've abused it. We've misused it. We've turned it into something that's defiled, that's broken. And oftentimes the defilement that comes from it is not that it's not necessarily unwarranted. Oftentimes it is warranted. But what Paul is basically saying is that sexuality can be redeemed and be restored. And the way that we as Christians need to think about it is that we need to think about it in a renewed sense, in a renewed light. So that rather than by giving way to, as Paul describes it, as sexual morality or oftentimes just simply straight up good old-fashioned fornication. Paul says we have to think about it in light of how God designed it. It's a good thing. The other question that we got to ask and kind of deal with is, who do we have sex with? Because here's the reality. I was... Um, reading an article this past week, and basically within the article, um, the guy was talking about kind of revival. And what are some of the holdups or hangups to revival? And straight up, the pastor just basically goes out, he's just like, look, at the end of the day, what I think one of the major holdups to revival within the church today is simply this. Sexual sin. People love sex more than they are eager for the outpouring of God's spirit. They don't want to let go of it. We're inundated by it. We're controlled by it. And in this article, it was talking about kind of the statistics of many young Americans. Um, it said that 90% of young Americans, you know, from a secular base, non-Christian, um, have sex at some point before they get married. And the reality is, is, especially within our church, to be straight up honest, a lot of people in our church have had sex already before marriage and will continue to have sex before marriage and will continue to struggle with that. So cheer up, you're sitting next to people right now that at some point have already lost that. So what are we going to do about it? Judge people? Misuse people? Abuse people? Or accept them and look forward to the hope that the gospel provides? And what I'm saying is that this is something that cannot just simply go overlooked. It is a cultural idol that has to be dethroned. Has to be dethroned. And look, what I really want to make sure, be very clear in stating is that oftentimes what happens when we talk about this, it provides ample opportunity for shame. And I want to be very clear here, that if you are part of the majority of people that have already maybe lost your virginity or have somehow been indulged in your life, in sexual relationships, and you found yourself dirty and defiled, I want to tell you that there's hope. God wants to restore. God want, there's no shame in the sense that God is not shaming you. God is welcoming you, inviting you to be washed, to be cleansed, to have your sexuality checked, cleansed, washed, placed within the lens of the gospel and redeemed and restored. So Paul goes on and he begins to point out that the gospel really affects us personally. It shapes us internally. It reshapes us beginning within our sexuality. 
Listen to what C.S. Lewis had to say about this, because I think he's got a lot of great insight. Now, he wrote back in the 50s this particular passage. It was out of Mere Christianity. Great passage. And again, I would just highly recommend anything C.S. Lewis oftentimes has to say on this. Great stuff. He says this, Christianity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness or fidelity to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it now is, has gone wrong, as it now is, has gone wrong, sorry, one, one or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct that has gone wrong. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is basically saying is that we oftentimes say we're just instinctual people. We just do what's according to our instinct. And what the Bible is actually saying is to live according to our instincts is not always what's right. Now, let me give you an example. If you're married, you know that this has to be true. If you're within the covenantal relationship or bonds of marriage where there is faithfulness, and whether, in other words, you've made a vow to each other saying, till death do us part, I will be faithful to you. I will only have eyes for you. I will only give myself holy, bodily, soul to you. That if in the length or duration of that relationship, there's any type or any hint of infidelity of any kind, Will it be just simply downloading porn? All would you straight up and full on, you know, some form of uh, uh, illicit relationship? The bonds are broken. No one can just simply say in a conversation, I was operating according to my instinct. Secretary looked nice, and instinctually, I just went for it. I just did it. I was just operating according to my instinct. That's totally unacceptable. No one should ever accept that. And we know that instinctively, that's to be wrong. So the same is what Paul is saying applied to our own sexuality. That the gospel is so pervasive, it affects, impacts, changes, reshapes the way that we think about our sexuality. Second thing, it's not just that. It's more than that. It's not less than that. But it also goes on to begin to talk about the reshaping of our personality. So not only does it reshape our sexuality, it also reshapes our personality. Verses 7 and 9, listen to some of the ways in which it does this. It says this, In these you once walked according to, uh, and you were living in them. In verse 8 it says, But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And he goes on, verse 12, he begins to talk about replacing them uh, with compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the gospel is so pervasive that it affects us personally and it begins to shape and reshape our personality. In other words... Being someone that says, I follow Jesus, I just have a really nasty temper, and I always bite people's head off whenever I'm angry. It's unacceptable to Paul, unacceptable to God. Because what it's really saying is that I'm part of the family, but I act like another family. And what Paul is saying, no, no, that's, 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 that's an irregularity, that's an inconsistency, that's an incongruity. That God's given you new clothes to wear. Put on those new clothes, put on the new robe, dress yourself in the new humanity that Christ is restoring you, redeeming you, washing you to walk in. And what the gospel does, it didn't just simply say, uh, modify your behavior, just stop being angry. It says, get to the root of that. Why are you angry? Why are you always so angry? Why are you always so angry when someone challenges you or questions you? The Bible's gonna say, as it begins to kind of deal with this, that look, none of us can just sit here and be like, I got an anger problem, I'm Irish. Right? You, that, that, doesn't, that may work in the world. That may work within the culture around us. That does not work within God's kingdom. Because what God would say, and let me just put it this way. God loves you too much to let you believe that lie. And to watch you rot away in that. And to rot other people's lives away in that. That God challenges it. And he says, no, no, no. The problem is, it could be any one of several things. But for example, if we are so quick and prone to fly off the handle, become fully angered from, you know, zero to, you know, 150 in a second. Perhaps it's because there's a root underneath that that says, I need to be in control of everything. And if I'm not in control, if I feel like I'm losing control, if someone questions my control, if someone pushes on my control, I flip out, I lose it, I become angry, I attack. And what God is saying is that you're not letting the gospel penetrate that area. What you need to know is that you don't need to be in control because I am. 
And to the degree that you know and you believe and you trust and you accept and you bring in the understanding of the cross, the gospel, that God is in control of your life. You know what that does? That frees you from stop having to be in control. And all that energy you use to somehow garner strength to fight your own battles, now you can use that energy to show kindness in a place of anger. That's what Paul's saying. Take off that old nasty, decrepit, smelly, soiled, disgusting clothing that has bad funk all over it. Replace it with something that's beautiful. Kindness, good, gentleness. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the gospel is so pervasive, it presses the cross into all the deep areas of our lives, sexually and personally. But it doesn't stop there. Because it does then extend beyond that, and it goes and it extends relationally. In verses 10 through 15, it begins to talk about us on a relational level. And I'll only spend a moment on this, because in verse uh, 12, it says this. Um, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Um, bearing with one another. If one of you has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What we need to first of all understand is that this, this book, Colossians, was actually written to a, uh, a church family. It was written to a body of people. In other words, if I can put it this way, it was written um, to a community that had individual implications. There are books in the Bible that are written to individuals that have community implications. This was a book that was written to a community that had individual implications. What I mean by that is that you and I oftentimes just, you know, Take a look at this from, for a second. When you have your own like little devotional time or private Bible reading or whatever you call it, quiet times, whatever, you know, wake up in the morning, every little journal and a cup of coffee with the scripture on it. You know, it's probably Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, and you, you know, you, you listen to your Christian music, whatever you do, however you sit down and you have your little Bible quiet time. I'm not making fun of that. I'm just, I'm just being honest, right? Like what, what typically we do is we read those verses as if they are just to me, Period. God does speak to you. Don't, don't misunderstand me. God does speak to you through this. And it is meant for you. But it was originally written to a family, a community. So in other words, when this letter was first written, this community, this church, you know, let's, just, let's just say, kind of put some uh, flesh and uh, bones to this particular church, this probably would have looked like a large household, maybe I don't know, 50, we don't even really know. Let's just hypothetically say between 50 to 75 people in someone's household, they would have cleared out all the furniture. It would have been messy. It would have been hot because they didn't have AC back then. Probably would have smelled the spices because someone would have been making some sort of falafel or, you know, really gnarly black, dark roast Turkish coffee because Colossi was within modern day Turkey. So imagine like really good, strong coffee. Everybody's sitting around. It's, it's hot, sweaty, 50, 60, 70 people around. Kids are freaking out yelling because they didn't have like blow up, you know, jumping houses for them to play in. They just had, you know, latrines. I don't know what they had back then. Just, it was, it was hot and sweaty. And they would, someone would come in and be like, hey, guess what? I got a letter from, from Pastor Paul and we're gonna read it. Everybody would gather around. Kids would sit on mom and dad's lap. They would hush them, quiet them. You would have rich people sitting next to poor people. You would have slaves sitting next to their masters. You would have a Jew sitting next to Gentile. You would have women sitting next to men, not divided the way they would have been within synagogue. You had all these people together in one house. They would have opened up the letter and they would have begun to read it. And they would have heard something along these lines as they read it, as Paul would say, put on then God's chosen ones. All of you, holy and beloved, put on compassion for each other, kindness for one another, humility for one another, meekness, patience, bear with one another. They would have heard this within the context of community. They would have seen that they were part of a family in which they were to work this out, live this out. So again, like I said, going back to my original statement, yes, God did write this and God does speak this to you individually, but don't get lost in yourself. Don't lose sight of the fact that these verses imply a community. And these verses mean, need to be lived out within community. And don't buy into the culture that says, no, 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 you don't need community. You can just be, you know, hanging out with you, Jesus, and that's it. You don't need anybody else within your life. The Bible calls us into living in community. And these are how these things work out. 
So for example, oftentimes it's funny because Christians can pray things like, you know, God make me loving. Let me just ask you, how do you think God's going to make you loving? Where's the context which that's going to begin to live out? If you understand biblical love, biblical love is not the way our culture describes love. The way our culture typically describes love is the love that our culture defines as love is probably best identified as sentimentality, sentimentalism. It's a warm, fuzzy feeling, feel really good. It's one of the reasons why someone can be like, I'm in total love right now. You're like, you met that person four minutes ago. How do you know you're in love with them? Their face is pretty. That's nice, but the reality is you don't know if you love that person because you haven't, there's no time by which you can even define that. But what I would say, it's best to define that type of emotion. It's powerful, by the way, very powerful emotion. I'm not in any way knocking it down. You might call it infatuation or um, that type of sentimentalism. And it's very powerful and oftentimes sweeps us off our feet and has, has, has an empowering feeling to us. But that's not really love. The way that the Bible is going to describe love, and if you think about love in that context, then you're going to find a lot of confusion when the Bible says things like this. Love your enemies. What does that mean? Have warm, sentimental feelings towards people that I hate and they hate me? It doesn't, it's not, it's not consistent. It's not congruent. It doesn't make any sense. But if you understand love within the context of the Bible, God is saying love looks like this. Here's a person who doesn't know anybody. He's a neighbor, and he loves his neighbor. And his neighbor was hijacked, was destroyed, was beaten up, left laying in the ground. And the guy that went out to him was a Samaritan. In fact, they were natural-born enemies. But he paid for a hotel for this guy. He bought bandages to fix him up, to take good care of him. He also left his, his, his credit card with the innkeeper so that if there's any more expenses that needed to be uh, taken care of, then he would cover the cost. Jesus would say, that's what love is. That's love. It's giving yourself. Love looks like actually getting your hands soiled with the stain in the stench in the scum of somebody else who's just gonna soil you. But at expense to yourself, you lay your life down to help them. One of the best ways to maybe identify this with our culture, and if you're a mom or dad um, who's, you know, ever changed a diaper, like th- this is love. Love is getting your hands soiled within the nastiness of your child's diaper so that they can be clean. Like no mom wakes up in the morning and be like, what I'm really longing for today is a nasty blowout. <laughs> throw in a little throw up too, it'll make my day. No one ever wants that. But every mom eagerly, not because they enjoy being soiled, they eagerly enjoy helping their child out because they are motivated by love. So what they are doing in that exchange, that little interaction, they are actually getting their hands soiled with something nasty that needs to be later washed off in order to remove the soiling off of their child, whom they love, invested in. So at great expense to themselves, they exchange the filth of their child upon themselves in order to give their cleanliness and purity to their child. This is the love of God that comes down to us. God, at great expense to himself, is soiled with our sin, our stain, our shame, our pain, our oppression, so that we who bear the constant stench and soiling of our sin can be given life and freedom. So what Paul is saying is that this is how love works itself out. It has to work itself out in community. It can't, we can't just say like, well, I love people. Well, who are you loving? What are the names of those people that you're loving? What are the names of them? Who are the ones that know you? Who are the ones that know what's going on in your life? Who are the ones that you're allowing them to change your soiled diapers? Like, I don't let anybody get that close to me. Then you don't understand the love that comes from the cross and the love that God wants to bring you into. In fact, it may be that your Christian experience may be superficial, and God is calling you into something with greater substance. So love, this new humanity, works itself out, not only in me personally, but also extends relationally, and then ultimately, the third thing is it explodes upon society. It explodes upon society. And this is what we actually begin to see, and I kind of choose that word carefully, explode, because Here's the point. You can't read the book of Acts without recognizing that what happened in the book of Acts was absolutely explosive. It changed everything. And for the next several hundred years, 
fact, some would argue probably all the way up until around, you know, 315, somewhere around there, or uh, when Constantine came into power around that particular time, and Christianity sort of became more of a state type of religion, something changed dramatically within the Christian world. But up until that point, something explosive was happening. And what was happening was so transformative. It had never been seen, never been watched, never been witnessed in history up until that point. Let me give you an example of how and why we know this. So take for Sorry, I'm yelling in here. So take for example, you had all sorts of religions in the ancient world. You had religions that were oftentimes regionalized, meaning if you grew up or lived within a particular region of the world, let's say North Africa, around the region of Alexandria or the uh, Delta, uh, the Nile Delta, you probably would have been influenced somehow by the ancient pagan gods, the sun god Ra. If you grew up in the island of, you know, Britain, somewhere out there, you probably would have been influenced somehow by Druids and clerics and all these other types of kind of paganized religions all the way up there. So there are certain types of regionalized religions. So what typically would happen is you, you don't find a lot of Druid-type worship, circle-type stuff going on down into the region of Africa. Because the moment they kind of leave that region, they just sort of dissipate. They leave. They're gone. They kind of get taken up or uh, uh, you know, absorbed by another type of religion in that particular region uh, based upon certain localized deities. Does that make sense? You also had religions that were basically oftentimes more focused upon men. So the, what you had was sort of, it was kind of more like a man type of religion. You had, you know, religions like that. For example, you know, Thor was a god that they worshipped. He was a god of, of vengeance, a god of power and might. There wasn't a lot of women being raised up within that religion. Because women were often as viewed as weak. They weren't the ones going out to battle. They were the ones cooking stew at home, having a lot of babies. And that's just the way that it was. And so women wanting to rise up in any type of religious form in those circles were not allowed. They were disallowed. They were abandoned. They were avoided. They were kind of marginalized because it was more of a man's religion. You had religions that were basically for more of the educated group of people. And what basically formed into what was called the Gnostic type of religions. These were the religions that had to do with knowledge. In other words, your ascendancy in that religion was based upon how much you knew, which is based upon how much education you had. So if you were poor, you could not afford a good education. You were disallowed into that relationship or that religion that was there. You would never advance. You'd never progress. There were religions for rich people. So if you were poor, you were not allowed. So the point that I'm trying to make is that Christianity comes along and it changes everything. It radically throws the entire power structure upside down on its head. So what you have is not a religion that's exclusively over, you know, male dominated, but what you have in one setting, one room are women and men sitting at the same table. You have rich people and poor people sitting at the same table. You have masters, people that are powerful, people that are politicians, people that have, you know, they're business owners. They have great, you know, industries underneath them, and you have their workers at the same table, enjoying the same meal, celebrating the same resurrected Christ. That is explosive. That is transformative. And when Paul begins to now enter in and begin to take apart each one of these specific areas within culture, for example, verses 18 and 19, he addresses marriage, husbands and wives. We'll look at that more next week. He basically is making an appeal, saying that, look, you, you husbands, love your wives. Don't just, like, you know, make room for them. Love them. Devote yourself to them. That, that's turning the entire system on its head. In other words, systems within a culture by which there may be proneness towards imbalance or oppression. Paul is saying, rather than oppressing those that are weak, marginalized, poor, or lesser, Figure out ways to use the power that you have to raise them up, to elevate them. Turning the entire power structure on its head. That is why Christianity was explosive. Acts chapter 1, 2, 3. What you have is when the church began to change. People's lives were transformed. What you have is on the day of Pentecost. You have all sorts of people. The Bible says that they were from Libya. They were from, you know, Turkey, Arab countries. There were people from all around the entire known world all together in one place and with one heart. So it wasn't that they just kind of hung out in one room, had a worship service together, but it says they were of one heart, meaning they weren't divided. That had never happened before. Never in all history 
was there now something moving forward, progressing, that was taking the marginalized, the weak, the vulnerable, the people that were forgotten and elevating them, taking those that were wealthy and great and powerful and leveling them down. Why and how could that possibly happen? Well, that brings up the last subject that we need to look at, and it's the issue of the new humanity and the shape of God's restoration. What shape does all this take? Well, if I can put it this way again, I kind of asked this question earlier. Again, Paul, I think, probably was motivated by something of a question along these lines where how do we rethink the, our roles and our lives in society in light of the reality, the fact that Jesus is resurrected again from the dead? How do we rethink all these roles? In other words, what does it look like for me if I'm a dad to shepherd and love my vulnerable children? What does it look like for me as a husband to shepherd and love and send a, 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 a in a sense, love and lay myself down sacrificially for my wife. What does that look like? What shape does that take in my life? What Paul is saying is that everything we do in this life gets put through that lens of the gospel. And so what he's going to say is that really what we discover is that it is cruciform. In other words, it's cross-shaped. Let me give an example of this. And take a look at the passage that we had just read. Take a look at around verse uh, 18 all the way down to verse Uh, one of chapter four, and I'll just read some selected passages in here. For example, in chapter eight, uh, verse 18, he says of chapter three, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. That little phrase, fitting in the Lord. Jump on down to verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents because this pleases the Lord. Uh, Jump on down to about verse uh, uh, 21, 22, I think. He says, um, speaking to the the servants, he says, uh, obey your masters in everything. And he says, uh, fearing the Lord, Jump on down to about verse 23. He says, for whatever you do, work hardly as unto the Lord or for the Lord. Verse 24, he says, for from the Lord, you will receive an inheritance. In other words, God will pay you. God will take care of you. He says, you are, the serving, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter four, verse one, he says this, uh, speaking to the masters. He says, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So think about it this way. If you were to somehow, within those passages that we just read, remove the subject, remove the object, what are you left with? You're left with basically this one constant, ongoing, cruciform, cross-shaped instruction. In other words, everything is put through the filter of Jesus. In the Lord, that's what Paul means. Everything is in the Lord, from the Lord, for the Lord. And that's Paul's way of saying the shape that our lives should take, the way that if you're a dad should look towards your children, the way if your husband should look towards your wife, or a wife towards your husband, or a child towards your parents, or a master, business owner towards, towards the people that work for you, or if you're just a worker towards your bosses, is that it should look like the cross. It should look cross-shaped, sacrificial, laying your life down in some way, shape, or form. How can we do that? Well, what Paul's gonna ultimately say, as we finish this thing, finally, in a sense, he's gonna basically describe that really, at the end of the day, God cares about all facets of society. He cares about all facets of life cares about the business that we transact. He cares about, if you're a dad, how you father your children. If you're a husband or a wife, he cares about the way that you interact with each other. He cares about the type of relationship you have with your boss. If you're a boss, he cares about the type of relationship you have with your employees. All of these things, he cares about these things. And then ultimately what God is saying, he cares about these things so much, and he's absolutely so committed to helping us to replace the brokenness and the sinfulness and the successive dysfunctionality of those relationships and replacing it with beauty and restoration and love so that God's name can be made much of. So that when people look at a husband treating his wife with incredible respect and kindness, that that actually tells a story hey, the reason why I can treat my wife with kindness and love and respect is because God lovingly treated me with kindness and respect. And the reason why these relationships can work its way out is because what God has done for us. And so the issue kind of brings us back to this ultimate thing. Like how, how can we do this? How, and what's Paul's answer to all this? Paul's answer would be by ultimately trusting God. But isn't that the rub? Like how do we trust God? Because we are a bunch of cynics. We're all a bunch of distrusting cynics. We're very slow to trust people, aren't we? I mean, honestly, if you're just honest with yourself, the the reality is is that we are. We are very slow to trust people, let alone a God that we can't even see. 
We're slow to trust people we see that we can look at in their eyes. We can have a lawyer right there signing paper with them. And we still walk away. We're like, I think that guy's shady. (laughs) How are we going to trust a God we can't even see? And what Paul's answer to us is going to be over and over and over again is that you have to not just simply know that he died, your death, paid your sin, and rose again from the dead. It's not enough to just simply know that. Because look, if you just simply know that he died, that's enough to maybe convince you. You may have some interesting facts. You may believe those facts. But that's not enough to transform you, to change your inner heart. It's not enough to just simply know that he died. You need to ultimately know why he died. Why he died. The Bible's answer to that is because he loves you. You were the child needing your clothes changed because you, unbeknownst to yourself, have soiled your lives personally, sexually, relationally. And yet God, in great grace, great favor, great love, great kindness, took upon himself the soiling that you have. His hands were made dirty so that you can, in exchange, be made clean. That's a God you can trust. So deep, so profound, so all-pervasive is this love of God that not only does it intend to change you personally, but then begin to change you relationally, but then beyond you in an explosive way, change this world through all of the roles you play in society. C.S. Lewis would put it this way, and I'm done. I'm gonna have the team come on up and we'll close this song worship. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. This is actually in a great little article that he wrote. It's called uh, Nice People or New Men or for gender, gender equal people, nice people and new people. The question that he's readily wrestling with in this is that why is it that oftentimes Christians can be so mean? Like, wouldn't that cancel out the fact that Christianity is true? And the whole point that C.S. Lewis is saying is really at the end of the day that God is not just simply out to make nice people. He's out to make new people. And here's what he says. Mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people. Even here and now and will, and in the end, improve them to a degree that we cannot yet imagine. I want to pause real quick and think about this. What C.S. Lewis is basically stating is that you and I are all broken people. We're dysfunctional. If you're honest with yourself, you already know that. Right, if you're a little bit kind of cloudy or unsure about this, uh, if you're married, just turn to your spouse at some point and ask, how messed up am I? And I'm certain, just say, just, you might even need to say this. Like, if I promise I will not in any way give you the cold shoulder or be mean to you, just give me in pure honesty, how, how messed up am I? We are all messed up. And the hope of the gospel, the promise of the gospel is that God is taking us into a place where we will be radically, profoundly changed. That all those little areas of husk in your life that are prone towards anger, that are messed up sexually and perverted in ways that you can't even begin to describe, you don't even want to describe because you're afraid that people will not even like you. That God will one day change you and you will be new. Some of that may happen in this life. You may improve, you may get better. Your temper may even out a little bit as you get a little bit older and a little bit more tempered the way a young puppy oftentimes gets a little bit trained to be less aggressive. You may change and improve in this life, but the hope is that one day, ultimately, we in Christ will be radically, profoundly changed in ways that we can't not even imagine. Hallelujah. And he finishes by saying this, God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better people of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of person. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better, but like turning a horse into a Pegasus. This is what God's doing. He's making all things new. All things new. This is the hope of the gospel. It changes you. This is the hope that God offers to you to change you, not just to make you a nicer person, but to take all of the junk and the funk and the disgustingness, the brokenness, what the Bible describes as sin, 
And the way this happens is you come by faith and trust and confidence to Jesus. You lay your swords down. Your arms down, as sisters would also describe, and you recognize that he is king. You're not. You're a subject who's in desperate need of his healing touch. This is the hope the gospel provides to change us, not to make us better people, but to make us new people. Paul's analogy, to take off old clothes that were prone towards decay and funk and disgustingness and decrepity, to replace that with something new. It's life-giving, life-changing. I want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, to trust this God. If you are here and you're a Christian and maybe there are areas in your life that maybe somehow to some degree the Spirit's been challenging and changing you, maybe in the area of you know, your personality, your sexuality, those areas, God wants you to let the gospel begin to penetrate in those areas to bring his cleansing throughout your entire life. That's how all-pervasive the gospel is, to bring the cleansing of God in every area. I don't invite you into this. We're gonna sing. We'll partake of communion. We have some rugs in the front. If you just want to get in your face before God and sing to him and worship him, confess your sin to him. We'll have some people off to the side that would love to pray with you. They're here to just love you and pray for you. Let's engage God. Let's love him. Let's worship him. God, thank you so much for the cross. And God, so for us here this morning, we recognize that of, of all people, joy, gratitude, thankfulness, profound sense of awe should be what wells up inside of our hearts and our lives and pours out. So Jesus, pray that you would just fall afresh upon us and let us sing. Thank you, God, for the friendship, the love, the kindness that we have in you, that we don't have to, we don't have to run from you in fear. We don't have to think somehow you will shame us. Jesus, you don't shame us. We know that. What, the reason why we know this is because you bore our shame. You lifted our shame. So that we who even think for an instant we deserve to be shamed, instead we're given a robe. We're clothed at great expense to yourself. Free for us to enjoy, savor, and love. So God, receive worship today right now from our hearts.